In the name of God who creates, redeems, and sanctifies. Amen. Please sit. I want to start this morning for just a minute by asking you to think about sleep. And it's not because I'm not getting very much of it. It's because it's relevant to the gospel, I promise. I want you to think about the most restful sleep you've ever had. Or perhaps the most restful sleep you've had recently. Or maybe the restful sleep you wish you had recently but you've not had. Think about what it means to sleep and to rest well. That feeling that I hope we've all had of waking refreshed and renewed like a new person, like a new creation. Think too about that phrase that we use frequently when we talk about sleep. I slept like a baby. You ever said that? I said it before I had children, I didn't really understand it. (laughs) There's that heavy baby sleep feeling, right? When we pick them up and we can move them anywhere and they just kind of hang because they're completely asleep. There's something graceful and trusting in the way that that rest happens. And there's something amazing about it. How nice would it be for us as adults to be able to sleep like that, with that kind of grace and trust and peace? There's an element to rest that is a little deceiving. It's not just about going away and going on vacation and having time away from the things that we do on a regular basis. But when we talk about real rest, retreat, renewal, what are the makings of that in your life? Where do you find that? How do you come by it? And when you've had it, what does it give you? What does it change? We're going to come back to that, so hold on to it. For the last few weeks, we have been following along in Matthew's gospel as Jesus prepares to send the disciples out to do his work, to proclaim that the kingdom of God has come near. And now the text sort of takes a turn, and there's a whole bunch of things that we're going to talk about this morning that are not in the text today, because the lectionary, like last week, jumps right over it. But it's important and it's relevant to what's happening. So Jesus says all of the things he said in the last couple of weeks to send the disciples out. And then the text says this, Now when Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and proclaim his message in their cities. And then there is a whole section about John the Baptist, which we completely jump over because, of course, as Episcopalians following the lectionary, we only like to hear about John in Advent, right? So there's this whole great episode that happens with Jesus and John that you might remember where John sends someone to Jesus and says, are you the one? Are you the one we have been waiting for, or are we to wait for another? Now, one of the wonders of scripture is how flexible it is, and how meaningful it is, and how alive God's word is, and how many different ways we can interpret it and understand it in different seasons and in different moments of our lives. The text lives and breathes in a meaningful way. Otherwise, we wouldn't still be telling the story this many years later. But that's also one of the dangerous things about scripture, is that if you're not careful, or if you're looking for a specific end, the text can be maneuvered to say a lot of things that it doesn't really mean. 
And in order to really understand it, we have to take into account the history and the context of each story, each person. And we have to look at these episodes and these verses sort of with the lens of the whole thing, the fullness of the whole canon. And John, in particular, I think, asks for that treatment this week. This week, as I was preparing for our time together, I did something that I often do. I went and read specifically people that I thought would disagree with my interpretation of the text, because that usually is what gets me started and helps me to think about it differently. And I read something this week about John that has stayed with me and has troubled me. And we're going to use that as a jumping off point. I have always read that story where John sends someone to Jesus as a moment of deep desire. John, we know, goes before Jesus to prepare the way. His entire life's work is about preparing God's people to hear Jesus when Jesus shows up. And he's very clear at the baptism in the Jordan that this is the guy. He's really, really clear that God has acted and this is the Messiah and he is right in front of him in the water of the Jordan. And so I have always read that moment as John's deep desire to know for sure, to hear, to have Jesus actually tell him. Sort of like Thomas, when Thomas says, no, 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 I want to see and I want to touch. John wants to have that deep longing fulfilled so that he could finish his work and, and I think probably finish his life satisfied, knowing for sure that he had done his work well. Which one of us would not want that clarity and that satisfaction? But this week, I read a commentary from an author that suggests that this moment actually is very different and that John is confused now about who Jesus is. John, who was so clear at Jesus' baptism, is suddenly now not so sure that he's the one because Jesus isn't doing what John expected. Everyone expected the Messiah to come and overthrow Rome, to lead a violent political revolution, to fulfill scripture by reestablishing the throne of David and sitting on it himself. The glory that is prophesied throughout Hebrew scriptures is interpreted to be a glory of power and might and military prowess and status and privilege and wealth. That isn't what Jesus is doing at all. God's coming into the world and the kingdom coming near didn't look like what they expected, and it caused people to wonder about him. Perhaps even John. What's more important here, though, isn't whether John was doubting Jesus or not. It's the point that what Jesus is doing, this revolution he's leading, is not the one that anyone expected. In fact, it is well outside the bounds of anything that anyone would have imagined, and so it makes it much, much harder for them to identify the Messiah, for them to believe that God has acted. So let's look at the gospel and work backward. The gospel ends this morning with this very comforting, I think very well-known, very beloved passage about rest. Come to me, all you who are weary and carrying heavy burdens. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in spirit, and you will find rest for your souls. In fact, it was something that I remember 
reading and learning about in Sunday school, and I took a postcard home from my Episcopal church as a little one, and it sat on a frame in my bedroom for the better part of my life. They're comfortable words. We like them very much. Those are not the words of someone who's come to lead a coup or seize power by force or force anyone to do anything, really. Those are the words of a loving God who knows that the world is weary, who knows that people are weary and broken and tired, even if they don't know it themselves yet. And so rather than violence, rather than power, what he offers is rest and humility and gentleness. Now the Greek here, the word for rest, anapausis, refers to more than just, you know, the, the nap that you might take after a busy day or the, you know, zoning out that you might do in a park or during your priest's sermon. This rest is something entirely different. It's Sabbath rest, so the kind of rest that God takes after God rests, after creating all that is, right? So it's meaningful Sabbath rest, or in some cases, it is the rest of death. So it's rest that has a seriousness to it, a weightiness to it, rest that accomplishes something meaningful, rest that literally ends burdens, right? Rest that creates equality, rest that brings peace, rest that brings justice, rest that changes us mentally and physically and spiritually as individuals and as a people. What Jesus is doing is not launching a physical, violent rebellion, even though that's what people expected, though it was profoundly political in a lot of other ways, and that's a different sermon. What he is doing is offering a new way of life, and it's not just a spiritual transformation. We sometimes like to talk about it that way, but it is a lot more than that. He is looking for folks who will be so transformed that they will then dismantle systems of power so that they can raise up the poor, comfort the grieving, find the lost, feed the hungry. In our context, that might also include releasing some of the other burdens that we put on each other. So it wasn't the physical rebellion that people expected. But what it was and is, is a leveling of the playing field. What he offers is a new way of life, one that the world at the time really didn't want, really wasn't interested in. All you have to do is take a quick look at the end of the story to realize that they were not interested in what he was offering. It would have been much easier in a lot of ways, and I think preferable for a lot of people if Jesus had come ready to fight. But instead, he tells us in this text exactly what he has come to do. And he starts with that sort of strange quotation at the beginning about the children calling to each other in the marketplace. And what he means here is that this generation is ambivalent. They don't want to dance. So they don't want to be part of sort of the festivities and the communal aspects of life. They don't want to mourn, which means they don't want to sort of be on the other end of the spectrum and, and, and be sad and be responsible for each other. And he continues to say they don't want to listen to John because he's too austere and too severe and too wild, and, and they don't want to listen to him. They've judged him as well because he's welcoming 
because he's not pious enough in their eyes. And I'm going to let you just think about the, the judgment in that. Jesus' point is that they don't like anything. They don't want to listen to anything. They are ambivalent. They are unsatisfied. They are unimpressed. And the truth is staring them in the face, and they don't want to see it and can't see it. Unless we be judgmental, I am not sure that our time, our moment, is all that different. If you want to disagree with me, I am happy to hear about that afterwards. But I think most of us, it's a pretty good image of, of us and our society and our present moment. And so Jesus goes on then in the text to thank God for, for changing how wisdom works in the world. And there's a little back and forth in this text that gets a little confusing, but what Jesus is essentially doing is explaining and using Matthew's language. Matthew and other places in the gospel talks about infants and children specifically as people who are uneducated or have been sort of left out of the system. So we're talking again about, about the poor and the outcasts, the people that we might consider less than, the people who aren't part of the structure, who didn't have all the things. And so it's in this context that Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and carrying heavy burdens. He's talking to a very specific subset of people when he says that. And this burden piece likely links up with another place in the gospel where Jesus accuses the religious elites of, of tying burdens onto other people. Tying up heavy burdens and laying them on other people. And he's thinking specifically of the religious elites who are benefiting from Rome's oppression, who sort of helped to prop it up, who are very willing to take the offerings of the people but then are not so willing to offer the people the kind of kindness and mercy and compassion that the law would dictate. They're using the law and their position for themselves. And so Jesus accuses them elsewhere in the Gospel of Matthew of tying up heavy burdens and laying them on other people. And surely you can think of some places where we do that in our common life now as well. So the revolution that Jesus comes to lead is quite real. But it wasn't the violent one that they expected. In fact, I think for them, and maybe sometimes for us, it was far less palatable. It was the last thing that anyone really wanted, especially the religious elites, because it was against them that Jesus was preaching, and against their hold on the people. Instead, what he wants to do is offer everyone, and especially the poor and the outcast, rest. Rest that changes everything. Rest that relieves burdens. Rest that creates equality and refreshment and newness of life. So the question I think always for us is then, when we understand a little bit more about the text and the context, what does it say to us? Why are we listening to this? How does that matter for us this week? And so the good news is that to all of us, Jesus beckons with this offer of rest. And what he says today is consistent with what we've heard from him in the last few weeks, that our faith doesn't necessarily make everything easy, but that if we are faithful, if we do follow him, things do change. Take my yoke, he says. And yoke, we talked about a little bit last week, is a sign of labor, of servitude, 
almost of subjugation. It's a willingness to take on the life of Jesus. In fact, we talk about that a fair amount at baptism when the Holy Spirit comes to us. It's, a, it's an obligation into a certain kind of way of life, right? So Jesus is asking us to take his yoke that we might eventually be free. The path to which he calls us, this path of love, this path of humble service, the path that teaches us that we are all equal, regardless of all of the ways that we've created in this world to sort of categorize and label and push people away and divide people up. All of that intends, all of that falls away if we intend to follow this path. And what we trade away by following Jesus, by taking on this yoke, by learning to live in this particular way of life, what we trade away is the burden of sin and the burden of the law, of having to earn God's love, the idea that we have to prove ourselves worthy or good enough. We're meant also to trade away the weariness of the world, the burdens that we carry in our own lives. The sleepless nights, the lack of rest, the anxiety, the panic, the frustration, the concern about what everyone else thinks of us, all of the unhealthy things that drive us and hurt us. This is what we're offered, a chance to trade away in order to take on the yoke of Christ. And specifically today, what Jesus is offering us is rest. And it would be too easy to just sort of say, well, that's the eternal rest that we've talked about. That's, you know, that's, that's what happens eventually, right? That this good thing will eventually happen to us. That would be far too easy and far too reductive. Because what Jesus is actually offering us, I think, this morning is rest now. Sure, eternal rest, yes, absolutely. But it's really about the rest that we get or that we could be getting now if we can learn how to rest securely in God's grace, knowing that we are loved, knowing that we are held, knowing that in Jesus there is freedom to find and wholeness and life abundant. And to do that, like John, we have to long to hear the fact, we have to long to hold on to the truth that he is the one, that he has come, that God has acted. And if we can hold on to that, then we suddenly don't have to wonder or worry but instead we can hold deeply within us, in our hearts and in our bones and in our bodies, the truth that Jesus is the beginning and the end. And if we can do that, then the rest that comes to us is that trusting, peaceful rest that maybe we've only had when we were very small, before we knew about the things that the world would do, before we knew loss and sadness and frustration, before we worried about people and how they perceived us and what they thought. If we can hold deeply the truth that Jesus is the beginning and the end, then it invites us to rest in hope, to hold on to that sense of peace and trust, not just that a good thing will happen to us someday, but that God is present with us and in us right now and has good plans for us right now. And so this week, I wonder if you will carry with you this image of rest and restfulness and renewal. And if you can think back to that image you had at the beginning of the sermon, of a time when you did feel rested, the time when you felt renewed, 
when something had shifted for you and you were a new creation. That I hope you'll wonder this week about what kind of a new creation we could be together if we could find that rest and offer it to each other. If we could trust him enough to put down the burdens that we tie on to ourselves and to each other. And take on instead that yoke of love that leads to rest. Amen.